In 2004, uh, this is going into the sermon now. We'll read in a second. Grab a Bible. We'll read in a second. 2004, a guy called Morgan Spurlock went out on a limb. Let's fire the, the slide up, Jim, will you? Uh, went out on a limb and made a documentary movie called Super Size Me. Anybody see it? Some of you did. Be honest. It was 2004. Some of you weren't even born. Um, some of you wish you weren't born at that stage. Uh, go to the next one. There we go. Perfect. Look at that there. Isn't that attractive? Um, and, and what he did was he wanted to see the effect that fast food had on the human body and human psyche. So he decided to do a documentary film where for 30 days he would eat McDonald's for breakfast, for lunch, and for dinner for 30 days. Now, some of you are thinking, that sounds like heaven. Um, some of you are in my camp and thinking, I would rather cut my legs off than do that. That sounds awful, <laughs> so it does. Uh, but, but he did this, and then he recorded the effects that he was having on his body and on his mind, on his health and his well-being. And he had a team of three doctors who were helping to measure that as well. And it was fascinating what happened. Over the 30 days, he gained, he was a really athletic guy, he gained 25 pounds of weight. That's a fair bit. His cholesterol level went up 57 points. That's terrifying. His liver enzymes, for anybody who's medical, uh, the SGOT and SGPT enzymes went up over 100 points each. He's getting close to liver failure. He, he became depressed, diagnosed depression. He lost sexual function. All of these things happened to him because he went to eat every day for 30 days, three times a day, in a certain fast food restaurant, and I should say there are other fast food restaurants that, that potentially have the same effect on the human body. Um, but basically, his body fell apart over the 30 days. And what's interesting, 16 years on, he did an interview about it, and they were asked, is there any long-term effects from it? And he said, yeah, um, I used to never gain weight. My, my weight just stayed really stable all the, no matter what I ate. But after doing Supersize Me 16 years later, he, his weight fluctuates in a crazy way. By having an unhealthy weekend, he can put on up to six pounds of weight. Some of you are doing, I can do that before breakfast. But for him, that was a big deal. His whole demeanor, his health, his mental health, his ability to do things, all of it changed because of the choices he was making, what he put into his body. The choices that he made on a daily basis were forming the person that he was becoming. And if he didn't alter the choices, then he might not still be alive with the trajectory that things were going in. Alan Hirsch is a, a church growth consultant and church planter. Um, and, and he says, your current pattern of behavior and practice is perfectly designed to create the person that you are. Your current pattern of behavior and practice is perfectly designed to create the person that you are. Here's my question tonight. One question and probably a 30-minute sermon around it. Are you happy with the person that you are? Are you content? Are you happy? Are you satisfied with who you are in life? Or 
Are there things you would like to be different about yourself? Would you like to be someone who is more contented? Less dissatisfied in every environment? Would you like to be someone who has more margin in their life? More, uh, more space and capacity to respond to things rather than just rushing from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing? Would you like to be someone who's more restful? who goes to bed at night and falls asleep without thinking about the hundred things that you didn't get done that day that you wanted to get done? Would you like to be someone who is more relational, has better quality relationships, has more time for family and friends, and when you're with them, the conversations are deeper and richer? Would you like to be someone who is more spiritual? Someone who is more like Jesus. Are you happy with the person that you are or would you like to be a little bit different? And then dial it back a notch and think what you're doing with your time, what you're doing with your money, what you're doing in terms of your consumption and your screen time and all of those things are making you into the person that you currently are at the minute. And if you want to change the person that you are, you have to maybe start to make different choices to go on that journey. That's what this series is about, spiritual disciplines, the I Am series. Gary was on I Give this morning. We had I Worship last week, and um, Ruth was on, what was Ruth on? I learn. Well done, Gary. Well, I wasn't here that Sunday, so I'm off the hook. But you guys all were. Shame on you. Um, these spiritual disciplines that we see in the life of Jesus that he, he, he modeled to us that made him into the person that he was, that we see in the lives of other men and women throughout the Bible, throughout church history, we're looking at some of these spiritual disciplines And we see them all in the Christmas story, which is wonderful. And tonight we're looking at fasting. How ironic. In the season of overindulgence, we're looking at fasting, but we're not here to feel guilty. We're here to be inspired. So grab your Bibles, open them up at Matthew chapter 1, or do you know what? Turn your phones on. They'll be on your phones. Or just look at the screen behind. Listen now for the word of God. This is Matthew chapter 1 from verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Just, it's definitely worth pausing on that point for a second. We take it for granted. Pretty cool miracle. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, again, also worth pausing to consider that, how God speaks to us. Angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David." Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And then he gave him the name Jesus. Amen. And we thank God for his word tonight. And you're probably thinking to yourself, he's lost the plot. What on earth has that got to do with fasting? I didn't hear fasting mentioned there once. We'll get to it. Let me tell you a story first. This passage that we have just read, it's all about engagement and marriage. So let me tell you how Lara and I got engaged. We were together one year, just one year. We didn't know each other before that. Our families knew each other. We didn't know each other. We met at university. And on our one-year anniversary, I popped the question. Spoke to her dad first. Did the right thing. Guys, pay attention. Listen. You know, ask permission. Most terrifying experience of my life. And then brought Lara down to White Rocks Beach. Got her positioned just perfectly. Got down on one knee. So did I, are you impressed so far? Got down on one knee. She'll tell you she was standing and the sun was in her eyes and she was kind of squinting a bit. It worked out well for me because I actually had one eye on her and one eye on the guys in the water surfing thinking, would there be any chance of getting a wee surfing after this? true story. <laughs> and I said, Lara, will you marry me? And she said, no. No, she said, yes. Thankfully, she said, yes. And we got married about a year and a half later. Yeah, just getting the nod. That's right. Okay, good. And we're almost 15 years married. Um, so that's, you know, doing okay so far. You know, doing okay so far. I tell you that story because that's a fairly typical way to get engaged and married in our context. But 2,000 years ago, it was really different. The practice was really different. There was the, the betrothal agreement at the start where two families would, would make an agreement that their son and their daughter would be well-suited to each other, essentially an arranged marriage probably happen when they're quite young, young teenagers, maybe not even that old. And, but they would continue to live with their own parents. The boy would be with the boy's family, the girl with the girl's family. And that would continue for maybe years. And then at one point, there'd be a, the second stage, which was a formal agreement, a legal agreement with witnesses present where the betrothal would become formal and legally binding. We think of a little bit of that in the actual marriage itself, that legally binding part. But the difference is, even though they were betrothed in that way, um, the boy would still go home to his own family, the girl to her family, and they would live apart and they wouldn't consummate the marriage. But at this point, it is legally binding. It can only end in death or in divorce. And if it's going to end in divorce, well, 
there has to be just cause for it. And then what would happen after a period of time, the groom, potential husband, would get all his mates together and go to the bride's house and would speak to her father and make an agreement and he would bring his bride home to his house. They would consummate the marriage. That's a fancy way of, well, you know what that means, don't you? We don't need to use that PowerPoint slide, Jim. We're okay. I'm only joking. (laughs) They would consummate the marriage and that would start a a party that could last up to a week long. And we see uh, in the Gospels, Jesus' first miracle happened at one of those wedding parties that lasted up to a week long. That that was how how they got married 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. And Mary and Joseph are in the middle of this process. They've had that kind of uh, parental agreement that they're going to become married in this arranged kind of a way that seems strange to our ears today. And, And that was okay. And then they've went through the second part of the betrothal where they have come together with a couple of witnesses, there's been a legally binding agreement made. This whole thing's been formalized and they've separated, went back to their own houses. They haven't had sex. That's important. And then Mary's found to be pregnant. And Joseph knows it's not his. And nobody really knows whose it is because Mary has got this crazy story about an angel and the Holy Spirit and it makes as much sense in that culture and context as it does in ours. And Joseph finds out about it and he would probably feel the way you or I would feel if we were in that situation And the law says that he has to divorce her. She has made the potential marriage impure, so he has to divorce her. And the different ways to do that, the the law does allow for her to be stoned to death, but really that didn't happen very much by the time we got to 2,000 years ago. Most of the people would either have done a public divorce where she was brought to the town gate and publicly just said, she's done this and this is what's happened and she's this kind of a person and named and shamed and sent back to her parents' house. Or he could do it quietly and not make a fuss and not draw any unwanted attention, not embarrass the girl that he's been in love with. And he chooses that option. He chooses the gentle divorce. Because we're told in the scripture he was a just man. He was a just man. And and normally when that word is used, it means somebody who follows the letter of the law, but he didn't follow the letter of the law here. What it means is he, he was kind, he was merciful. And I think there's a lesson here for us when you have a choice between doing what is right and doing what is kind, where possible, choose kindness. It's not always possible, but where possible, choose kindness. Sometimes it's not enough just to be right. Joseph does the right thing, but he chooses kindness as he does it. And then we come to verse 25, and I'd never really paid much attention to verse 25, where He's had this dream and God's spoken to him and said, what is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. This is an act of God. This child is going to be the Messiah and I want you to take her home 
and make her your wife and raise this child as your own. And he does that, and I think that's incredible because talk about obedience to God's voice. And this is the line in verse 25 where it says that he didn't consummate the marriage. They had no union together. He brought her home, but they didn't have sex together until the baby was born. Eight, seven months later on, depending on when they found out. Now, I'd always assumed that little verse, I just kind of passed by it. I always assumed it meant it was something to do with proof of the virgin birth that they didn't have sex together because they wanted to be above repute, that definitely, definitely, definitely it wasn't his. And then after Jesus was born, they had a normal married relationship where they came together because they had other children. James, who wrote one of the books in the Bible, one of Jesus' brothers. But as I've been sitting with this, text and this story and this series over the past number of months, just marinating and praying about it, God brought me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In some words on the screen, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband, and it goes on and talks more and more about that because, and we maybe digress slightly, but, but sex is God's gift to man and to woman to be practiced inside marriage. And I think that's really important, and we, our culture has lost any concept of that, but that is really, really important. Sex is this good gift that God has given us to, be, to practice inside of marriage. It's for reproduction. It's for, for having children. And it's for intimacy. There's very few ways that a husband and wife can be more vulnerable and more intimate together than in the act of coming together and making love. And it's to guard against temptation that that area of your life is satisfied by your, your husband or your wife, so you're not tempted in other ways. And as you read on in what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 5, he says, and do not deprive one another except by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. He says, don't deprive your, your partner of that kind of intimacy, except when you both agree to abstain from, from a sexual relationship so you can be prayerful and totally focused on God, and then only for a set period of time. And what he's talking about is fasting. What he's talking about is fasting. And often we think about fasting in terms of food and uh, we've been talking a little bit about the idea of, of limiting your screen time and, and fasting from, from Facebook products and Netflix and TV and all of that stuff because of what it's doing to our minds and how it's feeding our addictions. But here, the Apostle Paul talks about fasting from sex for a set period of time so you can devote yourself to prayer. 
Fasting is the temporary suppression of other desires in your life to allow our desire for God to increase. Let me say that again. Fasting is the suppression of other desires in our life to allow our desire for God to increase. Is God the biggest desire in your life? And we find Joseph, who now scholars reckon is about 18 years old, red, hot-blooded male, who has been a just man, so we can assume that he's been saving himself for marriage, has just got married and waits another seven, eight months before he makes love to his wife. There's something going on there. There's something about fasting going on there. I was reading, um, ready to be impressed, Psychology Today magazine. have to say, see here in East Belfast, you have a much better quality of magazines in doctors' waiting rooms. I'm just saying. But I was reading Psychology Today magazine, and there was an article that got my attention that I, that I read the whole way through rather than just skimming and looking like I knew what I was reading, uh, looking important. It was an article called Desire, The Origins of Desire. And what I was saying, I find this really interesting. We have these evolutionary, these base desires that are hardwired into our DNA, into who we are. For sugar, for social status, and for reproduction. Believe it or not. And I remember, this is going back to when we were pre-vegan nomads, running about, wearing animal skins, not sure where our next meal was going to come from. You know, thousands of years ago, we didn't have fridges and Tesco's and all of those things there. And so when we got the chance to eat something that was really calorific, if you like, we gorged ourselves on it because we didn't know where our next meal was coming from. We have this, this desire hardwired into us to, to consume enough calories so that we'll get through to our next meal. And we were running about chasing down antelope or whatever we were doing on the, the wilderness plains, trying to get our next meal. When we got the chance to eat, boy, did we eat. This desire was hardwired into us for calories. The desire for social status was hardwired into us as well, uh, right from, from our very origins, because our survival was based on being in a, a group of people that were strong and having a good standing within it. Because if you had a good standing within it, you got to eat first. And if you had a good standing within it, you got to, to pick whichever wife you wanted or whichever, well, whichever husband you wanted, maybe. Back then, things have changed now. Um, but this, this desire to be socially accepted and to have a good standing in your tribe or in your, your place. And then the desire for reproduction, to, to pass your name on, to leave a legacy, to, to make a difference, to to have children, because thousands of years ago, having children guaranteed that you were cared for in old age. These desires were, were wired into us from the start. And you can see how back then they were so key to our survival today. You know what I mean? Yeah? I'm, talk, I'm not asking many questions tonight. You just don't want you just nodding off on me. Um, so these base desires, but, but fast forward thousands of years to East Belfast, 
Advent 2019, do you know what? We still have these base desires, but they have evolved and transformed and they look really different. Now what it looks like is eating the whole box of Quality Street. Because we're going to have breakfast the next morning and lunch and then dinner, but we still have this desire to gorge ourselves on calories. Wired back to when we were chasing down antelope on the the Serengeti or wherever it was. And what it looks like now is, is... eating the whole big bar of Toblerone chocolate or the whole tube of Pringles, whatever it is, gorging on... Is it just me that does this or do you get... Stop looking so self-righteous. <laughs> and we have fridges and we have Tesco's and we have Lidl and, and we know where our next meal is coming from, but we have this binge mentality wired into us that dates back to when we first started. And this desire for, for reproduction hardwired into us has evolved and been, been tainted and twisted and broken and, and now manifests itself not in the desire to have huge numbers of children, but in addiction to pornography. Do you know that 35% of internet usage worldwide is for pornography? And I read another statistic, and you have to be careful with statistics because sometimes they can be far off, but sometimes they're not too far off. 40% of British adults look at pornography on a regular basis. That's terrifying, isn't it? How these base desires have evolved and, and changed and become broken and now drive us not into survival but into brokenness. And the desire for social status now looks like millennials touching their phone up to 2,000 times a day and Generation Z touching their phone up to 5,000 times a day and using Facebook products like they're going out of fashion to see how liked we are. And how many people have responded to to that thing we've said or that picture we've posted? Because we need the acceptance of other people. We all have these base desires that at one time have been really helpful for our survival, but but in the fall have been broken and and twisted and now lead us into all kinds of difficult and and addictive places. Do you know what's fascinating though? What's fascinating is that every part of humanity, or almost every part of humanity, recognizes the danger of unrestricted desire. In Hinduism, they talk about desire, and they say desire is the great symbol of sin and destroyer of knowledge and self-actualization. And in Buddhism, they say that unrestricted desire is the cause of all suffering. And in the Judeo-Christian tradition that we come from, we trace our origins back to, to Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman. And God said to them, all of this you can have, just don't eat from this tree. Just restrict your desire in this one way. Allow me to be enough for you. An unrestricted desire caused them to eat and do the thing that God said don't do. And sin entered the whole world and broke the whole thing. And even today, the number one best-selling book on Amazon is called 12 Rules, 12 Rules, by a guy called Jordan Peterson. 
12 rules because he recognizes the secret to human happiness and freedom is not unrestricted desire, but boundaries and limitations and restricting our desire and not living according to every whim that we feel. St. Augustine in the fourth century talked about our desires, but he, he talked about the disordering of our desires. He said our problem is not that we don't love, but we love the, the wrong things, or we love the right things, but in the wrong order. You see, guys, when you take this little baby that Joseph was promised by the angel, the one who the angel said, is going to save the people from their sins. And when you follow his journey and you see him go to the cross and die on the cross for the sins of the world, for your sins and my sins, and three days later rise again and ascend into heaven, when you recognize that he did that for you and you ask him into your life to forgive you and you repent of your sins, you are what we, what the, what we call in theology, you are justified. You are made right before God. You are made perfect on the inside. Just as if I never sinned. That's how we teach our kids, justified. That God looks at you and sees someone that is forgiven because you've put your trust in Jesus. It's the only way to experience forgiveness. But I've been a Christian since I was 11 years old. I'm 40 now, do the maths. Some of you guys have been Christians a whole lot longer than that. And we still experience temptation. We still mess up. I still mess up. I still experience disordered desires. I still crave the, the wrong things and sometimes make the wrong choices. So even though I am perfectly forgiven, I am justified, there's a process of sanctification that I have to go through. For God, by His Word and by His Spirit and through His people, helps me make better choices and leads me on the narrow path. And I walk in my forgiveness. And you see, guys, fasting, and we've come a long way to get back to this, but fasting is this tool or this discipline, if you like, Praying is a discipline. Bible study is a discipline. Coming to church to worship is a discipline. It's a choice to do it. Fasting is this discipline that not only does Jesus model in his own life, but he invites his followers to, to do it as well. And, and why do we do it? We do it so our desires can be sanctified and made holy. We do it so that we can allow God and his words and his voice and his presence to reorder your desires and to shape your heart and to make you more like Jesus. And we do it by taking the things that we feel like we desire the most. Maybe that's food or maybe it's screen time or do you know what? Maybe it is sex and, and, and pornography and, and whatever it is. We, we take these things and we lay them at God's feet and say, I'm going to abstain from this for a period of time, maybe 24 hours or 48 hours or whatever. I'm going to abstain from this for a period of time so that my desire for you, Lord, is stronger than my desire for this. 
And Joseph, this 18-year-old carpenter who's been saving himself for marriage because it's the right thing to do. He's got all of these different desires. He's a desire for his wife, emotionally, physically, all those ways that are really healthy and normal. And he's a desire to get married. He's got a desire to raise his own family and have kids. He's got a desire to to work hard and, and to provide for his family and to make a name for himself. He's got a desire to be a good citizen, a good Jewish citizen, and live according to the law. He was just. He has a desire to be accepted by by his peer group and the elders in his village. All of these things. And God, through a dream by an angel, interrupts him and speaks to him and asks him to do the hardest thing imaginable. Asks him to believe that his young fiance, who's pregnant, is actually pregnant by a miracle that no man has touched her, but it is through the divine, it is through the Holy Spirit that she is pregnant. Imagine the amount of faith that took. God asks him to endure the ridicule and endure the rumors and the finger pointing and the laughing and the shame projected on him by his whole village because either Mary's been unfaithful with somebody else or they've had sex before they were meant to but there was shame projected onto them. God said, I need you to endure that, to suck that up, to deal with it. God asks him to believe that this child that Mary is carrying is no ordinary child, but is the one the prophets and the scriptures have talked about, is the Messiah, Emmanuel, God coming to be with us, the one who will save people from their sins. And God says, I want you to raise this child in a way that he grows up to become the savior of the world. Guys, I can't even get my kids to keep their room tidy. And God asked Joseph to raise this this kid to become the savior of the world. I'm not sure that God has asked anyone in history to do anything more difficult. We talk about Mary's faith all the time, but Joseph's faith, I think, far surpassed it. And as I read the scriptures and read these words, read these stories, I think what's happening here is that to ensure Joseph in himself, to ensure that his faith was strong enough, to ensure that his eyes were firmly fixed on God, Joseph chose to fast. Laying his own sexual desire down at God's feet for seven, eight months, to ensure that his desire for God and his desire for God's word and his desire for God's will and for his purposes were the strongest thing in his life. And I want you to be really honest with yourself for a second. What is the strongest desire in your life tonight? What is the strongest desire in your life? Is it Jesus? 
would you like it to be? Mentioned this morning a thing called a hundred days. There are a hundred days from the first of January until Good Friday in twenty twenty. And some churches and their leaderships, and, and we're one of them, have decided to or, or felt called, felt led by God to invite as many churches as we can in East Belfast to pray for a hundred days for an awakening of God in the souls of his people in our churches, in our city, and in our land. To to allow a desire for God's kingdom to come. To allow that desire to be the strongest thing in our lives. Longing for, for more of God, a deeper relationship with God ourselves. And longing for our family and friends to to step into a relationship with Jesus, longing for this island of Ireland to to turn its face back to God, to its creator. And for a hundred days to to give ourselves to praying and longing and hungering for God to pour out his spirit and make that happen. On Wednesday, our staff teams from, from some of these churches came together to just to begin that process, to start praying for this. We think it's going to be a really powerful thing in our church and in our city as well. And one of the, the church leaders, wasn't from Orangefield, it was from Newton Breda, told a story, and I want to share this story with you as we finish tonight. There's a guy called Billy. It's a true story, a few months ago. A guy called Billy, and Billy you know, had, had a tentative connection with the church but hadn't been there for years, and we all know people like that. But Billy's life was a mess. And one Sunday afternoon, Billy found himself in his car, in a car park not very far from here, on his own, realizing just how much of a mess his life was. He was sitting, getting high on drugs. And he felt this this brokenness come upon him and this conviction that he had to get to church. And so he went to Newton Breda and he went into Newton Breda Church and he sat down and the service was going on and apparently during the sermon Billy walked out of the church twice and then came back in, then walked out and came back in. And, and when he walked out the first time he went into the guy's toilets and he got down on his knees on the bathroom floor and he was in floods of tears saying, God, my life is a mess. The choices I'm making are, are, are just horrendous. It's leading me somewhere I don't want to go. What can I do? What can I do? And he got himself gathered. He went back into the service. And five minutes later, he was way out again. And he was down on his knees in the bathroom floor in the guy's toilets, again weeping, saying, God, if you're real, if you're real, I give my life to you. I give my... And, and he went and talked to one of the leaders and, and he got saved that night. He became a Christian that night. But what they found out later was there was another lady in their church who knew Billy 
And she woke up that morning and just had this, this real conviction to pray for Billy. She didn't go to church that day. She spent the morning on her knees in her living room, crying out to God, God, just rescue Billy. Show him your love. Show him you see him. Rescue him. Save him. Forgive him. Let, let, him, let him just come to you, God. Apparently, she spent six hours that day wrestling with God, crying out for God to save Billy. Isn't that an incredible story? Isn't that an incredible story? I came away both feeling guilty and feeling inspired by that. I couldn't tell you, and I'm your minister, I couldn't tell you the last time I spent six hours in prayer crying out and weeping for the people in my family and for my friends and for people on the periphery of this church who don't yet know Jesus. And I wonder when the last time you did. Wonder how awake we are to the urgency of the gospel. And we need an awakening. We see how dark and how broken this land is. We need an awakening. We need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We need people to turn their hearts back to God. But here's the truth. Every awakening in history... Every revival in history, in the Hebrides, in the 1859 revival here in Ulster, in Wales, every revival in history started with an awakening in the hearts and in the lives of one and two and three people who, who started to come together and to pray and to hunger for God. And the desire for God to move and for His presence became the strongest thing in their lives. And nothing else would satisfy apart from that. And they refused to give up. They were tenacious with their prayers. And so for a hundred days, we're going to ask God to awaken our souls. And we're going to ask God to awaken this city. And we're going to ask God to awaken this land and start something in Ireland that actually does what happened 1,600 years ago and starts a movement that sweeps out across Europe and calls a people back to God. And that's a big prayer, but do you know what? We believe in a bigger God. And I invite you, I invite you to be part of that. We read about Emmanuel, God coming to be with us on that first Christmas. David started the service with those words. Tonight we experience Emmanuel, because God is in this place. His spirit is moving in this place right now. But we need to start to anticipate Emmanuel as well. Because one day Jesus is going to come back and he's not coming as a baby in a manger to go on the front of Christmas cards and sing carols about. He's coming as judge and the only question that matters is, what have you done with me? He's going to say, have you accepted me? Have you given your life to me? And that's the only thing that's going to matter. Heidi Baker, I finish with a quote. Heidi Baker talks about fasting. Fasting. 
And she says, you don't fast to get more of God. That would be works-based righteousness. We don't do that. We fast to get more hunger for God. We fast to get more desire for God. We fast to get a fire in our souls that causes us to fall on our knees and cry out for six hours for the people in our lives that don't yet know Jesus because do you know what? Nothing else is going to satisfy. And I invite you to start to build fasting into your life. There's different ways to do it. Maybe weekly, maybe monthly. How desperate are you for God? For his presence? For his kingdom? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, make us hungry. Don't make us satisfied, make us hungry to desire more of you. May you be, Lord, for our souls what air is for our lungs and our bodies. May you be the very air that we breathe. I pray, Lord, increase the hunger of every single one of us tonight. May we want you more than anything. Some of you tonight, God is already laying on your heart things that he's saying, this is an idol, this is something that is more important than me. And he's asking you to to agree a period of time where you're gonna fast from that thing. And you're wrestling with him, you're trying to justify it and and self-justify it to yourself. I invite you in this moment to make a a covenant with God and say, I'm going to lay that thing down. I'm going to fast from that thing. For some of you, it's spending. For some of you, it is very simply food. Just for a short set time to say, God, you are my desire. Father, thank you that you love it when our hearts turn to you because your face is always towards us. You never disappoint Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.